The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Today. It's great to have you with us as we investigate today our fifth message in our current preaching series that we've entitled Big Faith in a Big God. And this series is anchored in the big faith chapter of the Bible, which is Hebrews chapter 11. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, please go ahead and find those and turn to Hebrews 11. If you don't have a Bible with you today, it's fine. All the passages will be on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, if you're kind of new to Christianity and you don't have a Bible, we've got a gift Bible to give to you. If you'd like to grab one on your way of church, out the, you know, as you go out of church this morning, that'd be great. That's our gift to you. So Hebrews chapter 11, this great faith chapter, as we conclude, come to the concluding verses of this passage, we're going to see the portraits of faith. In other words, we're going to consider together what real faith really looks like. And so let's jump in verse 32. We're going to read down to the end of the passage. By the way, even though this is the concluding passage in the chapter, this is not the last sermon in the series. Here next week we'll wrap up our Big Faith and the Big God sermon series. So verse 32. And what more shall I say? And so up until this point, the author has listed these heroes of faith, Moses, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then he says, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through, here's the key word, faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and in mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were commended for their faith. Yet, now listen to these words, yet none of them received what was promised. The prosperity gospel just took a slap in the face just right there. Verse 40. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And so really the main aim of our author here in these concluding verses is to help us realize and to help us see what real faith really looks like, what it really is. And this is a big question that Christians in any age need to ask themselves and need to consider no matter what the culture values, no matter what the culture despises for that matter, God's command and commission for his people in any age, in any culture, remains exactly the same. And what is that? To be a person of real faith. That's his command. To be a local church of real faith. In other words, to be a Christian. To be, because to be a Christian is to demonstrate real faith. And so this question of what does real faith look like is a timeless question. And it's a timely one for us to consider this morning. And so what exactly is real faith? What is it? Well, from the vantage point of our inspired author here in Hebrews 11... He tells us that real faith includes two things. It looks like two things. Firstly, real faith 
is front-footed. It's front-footed. That is, those with real faith are always on the move. They're always seeking to promote or advance the kingdom of God or the values of the kingdom in some particular way. Just notice with me the front-footed terms and expressions that our author uses to describe real faith. He says in verse 32, he gives us a list of all the faith heroes. And in verse 33, he says, who through faith, listen, conquered kingdoms. Let me suggest to you that's a front-footed term. That's a front-footed action. You cannot conquer a kingdom while sitting on your rusty dusty or on your backside. You cannot do that. What about administer justice? You can't do that on, on the back seat. You can't do that on the back foot. That, regard, that, that, that includes and it, it, you need to be on the front foot, standing up against oppressive governments and injustice. He goes on, quenches the fury of the flames, and etc., etc., all front-footed terms. And so in the mind of our author, to have real faith means to be someone who's courageous, in other words, someone who takes risks for Christ, someone who's not content with mere maintenance mode, but rather is kind of on the move, the values of the kingdom, wanting to see them established in people's lives and in communities. You know, just recently I was... Uh, I've been reading a short biographical account on William Wilberforce. Who's familiar with William Wilberforce? There's a picture of him. And um, I've been reading the book by Eric Metaxas uh, entitled Seven Men. And I know some of you have read that book. It's a fantastic read. And he talks about William Wilberforce. And this man, talk about front-footed exploits. This man was incredible. In fact, one Christian writer and author, Os Guinness, regards William Wilberforce as the greatest social reformer in the history of mankind. Now, now, why? I mean, it's a big claim. Well, William Wilberforce was a politician, a British politician, and uh, shortly after his conversion to Christianity, he became increasingly concerned about two social moral issues. The first one he's famous for, and that is the African slave trade. He wanted to see that abolished. And then the second was that he wanted to see the moral landscape in Britain, in particular London, transformed. London, in Wilberforce's day made Gotham City, I don't know whether you're familiar with the Batman movies, but seriously, uh, London made Gotham City look like a holiday camp. Seriously. It was was debauched, it was full of wickedness, there was no regard whatsoever for human life. For example, five and six-year-olds were forced into labor to to, to work, you know, 10 to 12-hour days um, in horrendous, dangerous conditions. Uh, I mean, five and six. I mean, Annabelle, she is five. We celebrate her her birthday party yesterday. She's about to turn six. And all she's thinking about is unicorns, for crying out loud. (laughs) But, But these kids, some of them lost their lives. This was the social state. Also, um, there were other wider social problems like alcoholism, which contributed to almost every other form of social problem. Uh, Almost everyone, this is not an overstatement by the way, almost everyone was addicted to alcohol. Parliamentarians would rock up to, to court drunk. They would pass bills drunk. And maybe some of you are tempted to think maybe that's still the case. But anyway, the sex trafficking of women was another evil too bad to imagine. 25% of all single women, listen to this, in London were prostitutes. The average age, their average age was 16 years old. And and the worst of all, public hangings and human, listen, dissections were among most, uh, uh, most popular forms of entertainment. They didn't have TV and so they went to a public hanging. Oh, the guy's gonna get chopped up today, awesome, let's rock up to that. That was the social condition. 
That was the immorality that was rife in Wilberforce's day. And Wilberforce believed that God had set these two tasks before him. And so, in a front-footed sense, this man of faith, he fought year after year after year to see these things change, to see transformation. He had to overcome ill health. He had to battle opposition, death threats. He had to stand up against an oppressive government. And yet, for 18 hard years, he continued to fight, to fight, to fight on the front foot. Talk about a man of faith. Eric Metaxas, in his book, writes this. At last... In 1833, listen, just three days before Wilberforce's death, he received a visitor who brought extraordinary news. A young member of the House of Commons told him that earlier that day, Parliament had voted to outlaw slavery. Hearing this magnificent news on what turned out to be, listen, his last day of consciousness, his last day was the fitting end to a spectacular life one lived out in obedience to the God who had created him. And as Eric Metaxas reflects on this heroic individual who exhibited and displayed front-footed faith and boldness, he says these words, and this is the point of application. How God used William Wilberforce to change the world is almost unbelievable. One man, now listen to his front-footed language here, one man who gave his talents... His time and energies to God's purpose was able to do so much. But we who admire him shouldn't compare ourselves to him directly. Here's a caution. We should compare ourselves to Wilberforce and these other faith heroes, but indirectly. How so? Well, here's the question. We should ask ourselves, am I using what God has given me for his purposes? In other words, am I using, in a front-footed sense, my time for God's purposes? Am I using my energy? Am I using my youth? Am I using my experience? Am I using my money? Am I using my time? Am I using my abilities to see the kingdom of God advance? That's the question. In other words, what has God set before you? Make it personal. What has God set before you, and what are you doing about that? For Wilberforce, it was these two things, but for you, it might be something else. It might be some other social justice concern. For instance, the, the human trafficking epidemic, the sex slavery industry, it's a wicked industry, or maybe the cry of the unborn, or maybe child soldiery, or maybe something else. What has God placed before you? And are you taking steps in a front-footed sense to advance God's kingdom? Maybe... It might be that God's placed before you, set before you, the wonderful task of taking the gospel to a different place. We must never minimize or belittle the need to have missionaries to take the word of Christ out to a different land, to a different place, an unreached people group of the world. Maybe God's been stirring that within your heart. Maybe God's placed that before you. What are you doing about that? Are you taking the next step? If, if you're really sensing God stir you, maybe the best thing to do, I would suggest, would be to talk to someone about that. If you're in a connect group, talk to them. God, I think God's put this on my heart. I don't know what to do with it. Or, or maybe read an article or book on the subject of missions or social justice. Or, or maybe a different task that God has put before you is that he's calling you to be the best employee or the best employer possible. Someone who works with integrity. 
someone who does fair work, honest work, loving work, who loves their neighbor through their work so that you actually advance the kingdom by contributing to human flourishing through your work. Maybe that's what God set before you. And if he has, what are you doing about that? What's the next step for you? Are you being front-footed? Or maybe, just maybe, in the season of life, he's called you to be a stay-at-home parent who just models Christ-likeness to your kid. C.S. Lewis said that this is the most wonderful ministry on the planet, being a parent who lives a Christ-like life before their children. Maybe God set that before you. Again, the question is, what has he set before you and what are you doing about it? If you're here this morning and thinking to yourself, I'm not too sure what God set before me, then, then let me encourage you to be more like Wilberforce, okay, and get alone with God. Because look, these two things that God set before Wilberforce didn't fall out of the heavens. He walked with God, and mission always flows out of vision, as it, as it did for him. He saw who God was. He gained more of God's heart, and he started to see what God was calling him to. If we're not in the presence of God, there won't be much mission going on, because mission flows out of affection. It flows out of vision. And so if you're here this morning and not too sure what God has called you to, Get alone with God. Spend quality time with him. Also, if you're here this morning and you've pretty much disqualified yourself because you're here saying, I'm not smart enough. I'm not old enough. I'm not moral enough. I'm not good enough. Let me take you back to the text. Did you, have you checked out this list? I mean, he mentioned Samson for crying out loud. And, and what about Gideon? I mean, Gideon was a frightened farmer whose faith didn't immediately blossom. It took time. He doubted God. He questioned God. He ran away from God. And so there's hope for all of us. Because God can turn weak ones into mighty ones, scared ones into courageous ones. And so again, I encourage you, spend time with God because this is what faith really looks like, church. It looks like being on the front foot, taking risks, being courageous, being bold. And so this is the first thing that our author tells us about what real faith really looks like. It's front-footed. But in addition... Secondly, real faith also includes, listen, hard-headedness. So it's about front-footedness, but it's also about hard-headedness. Now, be careful here. I'm not talking about being pig-headed. All right, pig-headedness is something completely different, all right, where you're arrogant and you're aggressive. That's not what it means to have saving true faith. But hard-headedness, which means to be persistent. Just like Wilberforce, those 18 hard, long years, persisting, fighting, never giving up, never quitting. This is what faith looks like as well. Now, now, now church, why is this hard-headedness, this persistence, a quality of faith? Why is this a virtue of faith? Because, listen, sometimes the breakthrough never comes. Sometimes the breakthrough never comes. Or... It may take a number of years to see the breakthrough, just like Wilberforce. But sometimes it never comes. Sometimes the dream never materializes. That's just reality. I mean, let's go back to the text to see this played out before us. In the second half of verse 35, this is what our author tells us. There were others, there were others who were, what does he say? Tortured. That doesn't sound like a front-footed exploit to me that's rewarded that's successful, but they were tortured. He goes on, refused to be released. Verse 36, some faced jeers and flogging, even chained and imprisonment. 
They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. Do you notice that in verse 37? They, these, these ones were killed by the sword. But in verse 35, we're told that some escaped the edge of the sword. Sometimes God causes you to escape. But other times you've got to endure the sword and you may die. Warren Wiersbe uh, in his um, commentary on, on Hebrews says it takes more faith to endure than it does to escape. This is real faith, church. You see, the author places these guys, these ones who suffered horrendously in the category of faith, which means the point of application is this, that yes, it's right to believe for breakthrough. Just, just like the earlier verses, these heroes of faith, it's right to want to see the miracle. And I pray that we would see breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough this year at PCC, individually and as a church. But listen, faith is also, and I dare to say this morning, even more so about digging deep when all hell breaks loose in your world, when all hell breaks loose in your body, when all hell breaks loose in your family or your marriage or your plans or your dreams. Faith is about digging deep because there are no guarantees in this life that our faith, front-footed faith exploits will pay off, will be successful. I'm just, I'm just thinking as by way of example about you know, parents, Christian parents who live a Christ-like life before their ch- children. Well, not, those children not, only, uh, not always grow up to be Christians. It's just a reality. It's a sad reality, but it's a reality. Not, not every faith-filled, front-footed initiative pays off. I'm just thinking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you may know of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know, he was 39 years old, and he was about to be married, and he was a German Christian, loved the Lord, and he hated what the Nazis were doing there in Germany to the Jews and to others. And so he was a part of an assassination plot, talk about front-footed faith, to kill Hitler. The bomb went off in the meeting that Hitler was in, and Hitler survived. And then Hitler found out that Bonhoeffer was a part of that assassination plot that had him arrested. And three weeks before the end of the Second World War, Bonhoeffer was martyred. He was martyred. And in his diaries and his journals, we can tell that Bonhoeffer was discouraged because he was about to be married to his sweetheart. He was 39. I'm 39. He was 39. He had so much to live for. And yet in his journals, he clearly was trusting Christ. Because he realized, you see, that faith is not only about these front-footed exploits, seeing the breakthrough, the breakthrough, the breakthrough. Oh, come on, you Pentecostals. But also about being hard-headed and enduring, enduring, and never giving up. Amen? And so real faith, according to our text, is both being on the front foot but also being hard-headed. Now, concluding question here. How does this kind of faith come about in a person's life? Isn't that the big question? How does this kind of real faith, front-footed, hard-headed, bold, courageous, steadfast faith actually come about? What's the secret to gaining this kind of faith? Well, let me be sneaky here and answer this question by posing a deeper question. And the question is this. Why do we sometimes struggle to have this kind of faith? I'm being very generous and kind. I said sometimes. Why do we often struggle to have this kind of faith? Two reasons, and they're both in our text. Number one, we lack courage. We lack courage. That is, we lack nerve. Having a public faith that is out there, that 
takes the gospel seriously will always attract some kind of hostility. If you're a Christian on the front foot, you will run into complication after complication. You'll run into difficulties. For example, your party life or your personal life may become complicated because of your front-footed faith. Don't invite her. (laughs) Don't invite him. Don't include her. Do you know what they believe about marriage? Do you know what they believe about gender? Do you know what they believe about other faiths? Don't include them. And sometimes we Christians, we get a little bit scared because we need to be needed. We want to be popular. We want to be liked. We want people to approve of us. And so we we tend to, to back off and just play it safe. Or to change the example... Maybe your professional life will be complicated because of your front-footed faith. Because who knows, to climb the corporate ladder means that you need to keep your professional relationships sweet, right? Because it's all about networking. You can't say things that are not tolerated in our culture, you know, because you may not get that promotion, you may not get that job. And so we, 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 we get a little scared, I really want that job because if I get this promotion, then then I'll feel like my life amounts to something. How does the gospel, church, speak to these things? That's the question. How does the gospel address you in this? The gospel comes alongside all of us and it says this. It asks us this question. Where does your identity rest? That's the question. Where does your identity rest? Does your identity rest in your need to be needed, your need to be liked, popularity, People's approval. Does your identity rest in your professional success? Or does your identity rest in how God views you in Christ? How he accepts you in the beloved? You see, I think that this was one of the ways and one of the reasons why these early believers overcame. Why they had this hard-headed faith. Because they saw themselves through the eyes of God. Just notice with me, verse 38. This is God's assessment of the heroes of faith. Those who endured the world, what does it say, was not worthy of them. Can you see that? This is God's assessment. This is not the author's assessment. This is God's assessment. The world was not worthy of them. Oh, the world despised them. Tortured them. But in the eyes of God, you're up here. The world, they're not worthy of you. You see? If we realize this, that the world is not worthy of us, when we live for God, this front-footed, hard-headed sense, I think this will be, give us the ability to be courageous. Because we won't need people's approval because we've got the approval of the king. We won't need their applause because we've got the applause of the king. We won't need people's popularity because we're popular with him. The world's not worthy of them. What about verse 39? We read, these were all commended for their faith. Who's doing the commending here? Again, it's God. He's applauding these front-footed faith exploits. Even while the world is booing and hissing and cursing, God's applauding you. God's applauding me when we're front-footed, when we're trying to change something in the culture, when we're trying to lead someone to Christ, when we're trying to be a good employer, a good employee, when we're trying to be a good parent for the sake of Christ. He's applauding. He's applauding. And so the more we, I think, receive his applause and realize that he's for us, he's commending us, I think we won't really need the applause of others, right? We won't need their approval because we've got his great approval. So secondly, it's the first reason I think why we lack this kind of faith sometimes is because we lack courage. Now, secondly, lastly, and this is, I think, more important. We lack certainty at times. 
We lack certainty. What do I mean? What do I mean? Let me find it on my page. Because I want to read this to you. For us to be people who essentially run into trouble by having this kind of faith, we must become increasingly certain, listen, about our future home and inheritance. In other words, let me put it this way. It's going to be on the screen for you. We will more likely be persons of great faith when the promise of the coming kingdom replaces the present comforts that we often give our hearts to. That's big. I'll read it again. We will more likely be persons of great faith, real faith, front-footed, hard-headed, when the promise of the coming kingdom, by the way, which is not a fairy tale, it's the reality Christ is going to bring, this resurrected existence, replaces the present comforts that we often give our hearts to. You see, let's go back to the text. The second half of verse 5 is profound. We read these words. There were others who were tortured. Now listen to what the author tells us. Refusing to be Released. Now, if you've ever watched Braveheart, you would be aware of the, 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 the mode of torture that was used in, in this particular day. It was the rack. Right? You've seen the movie? These believers, these Jewish believers, were placed on the rack. Then a horse was placed on one side, another horse on the other, and they were tied to it. And the horses just pulled away until every bone in the believer's body broke under the strain and the stress. And if that didn't kill them, they were then untied and then beaten to death with a club. And yet, sometimes their persecutors and their tormentors would give them the opportunity to be released. And so they would say, all you need to do is deny Yahweh. Deny your God and you're a free man or free woman. But so many, according to our text here, refused to be released. They refused. They refused. Church, what gave them the courage to do that? To refuse release. What gave them the ability? What we're told in the text. He said, goes on to say, others were tortured, refusing to be released, so that, here we go, they might gain an even better resurrection church. The reason why they said no to momentary uh, comfort was because they were looking forward to eternal comfort with Christ. Eternal comfort that God had won for them. In other words, church, their hearts were someplace else. Their hearts were somewhere else, and our hearts will be somewhere else as well when we experience the intoxicating love of God in Jesus Christ, who through Christ, he has secured for us this eternal comfort. You see, we as Christians have experienced something that these believers here never experienced, and what's that? Well, we've experienced the heroic efforts of the true hero, the ultimate hero, Jesus Christ. To use the language of our text, Jesus, what? Refused to be released. Why? In order to gain for us a better resurrection. So so that we wouldn't be cursed. So that we wouldn't be tormented in hell. So that we would enjoy the eternal comforts. He refused release in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what we see Jesus doing under that moonlight. All alone in the dark, as he was sweating, great drops of blood. What does he say? What do we hear the Savior say there? Not my will, but your will be done. What is that? Isn't that the language of refusal? No, Father, I'm refusing this momentary comfort in order to embrace the cross so that my people will experience and enjoy eternal comfort and joy. In John chapter 19, verse 10, 
in the presence of Pontius Pilate. Pilate has investigated the claims. He's weighed it all up and he said to the people, I find this man innocent. And then in that verse, he turns to Jesus and he says, don't you realize that I have the power to release you and to crucify you? And what does Jesus choose? He chooses crucifixion. He refused to be released in order to win us this eternal comfort, this eternal joy. You see, these words that are used here could be used for Jesus. Jesus was flogged. Jesus was ill-treated. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was put to death. Jesus was killed. Why? Why? Well, to win for us this comfort. You see, church, the, the moment we realize and our hearts are melted by this reality that God, the Son, left the glories of heaven, the comforts of glory, the beauty beyond bearing and description in order to be plunged into utter ruin and utter discomfort in order to win us this eternal comfort to the degree that our hearts are melted by that will be the degree of certainty that we'll have in this life because we know that we are going to a better place and we can let go of the things of this life. We can have, have more courage because in, in, in Colossians, we're told that courage and certainty are linked and connected together. He says this faith, meaning this front-footed faith and love, spring for this, from this hope, this certainty that we have in the gospel. And so my prayer and our prayer is that we would be filled with this faith because Christ has done so much for us to win us eternal comfort and eternal joy and glory. And so because of that, I pray that we'll let go of the things of this life and have this faith. And even if that faith goes south, even if our exploits don't turn out the way we want them to, that's okay because every exploit in God is never in vain. How about we stand, church? Thanks, Luke. Lord, the answer is always Christ. Father, the answer is always in Him. And I pray, Lord God, that our hearts would be increasingly melted by your intoxicating, otherworldly, eternal, transformative love that is found only in your Son. And Lord, I pray because of your love that we would do great exploits, because we have this certainty, would have this courage, Lord God, to be a people of real faith, believing for breakthrough. But even if it doesn't come, Lord God, holding on to you and not letting go, because we realize, Lord God, that in you, everything is worthwhile. And everything, Lord, is beneficial. Lord, I just pray, Father God, as we conclude here, I just want you to reflect on the passage and reflect on what we've heard this morning. And again, I just want to encourage you to consider that thing, that task that God has placed before you. And I really want to encourage you to take the next step. The next step. I don't want it to be dormant in your life for you to be passive or apathetic. I encourage you to speak to someone, even today, about what the Lord has placed on your heart because we, don't we, want to be hearers of the Word but doers of the Word? 
And so speak to someone today. If it be your connect group leader or a close friend, or you can come and have a chat to me or about what the Lord has placed before you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.